Travel Magazine would like to thank its sponsors Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support. What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr Mark Halloran and you're listening to Deep Trouble. We're back in the studios of Main FM, 94.9 Main FM, and it's time for another episode of Deep Trouble. As usual, I have Mark Halloran. How are you going? Good. Well, it's time to air your interview with Dean Cocking, local Castlemaine identity, and he's written a book, Evil Online. Evil Online is a book that applies his theory of moral philosophy to the things that he's observed on the internet. But he talks about the way that people kind of essentially when they're online and they uh, join an online community, whether it's Facebook or YouTube, that they can get involved in very, very extreme things because they essentially lose their moral compass through a, a form of groupthink. In a way, Evil Online seems one of those snappy titles of a book that publishers just love. But do you want an overly verbose and boring title? <laughs> no, that's going to grab people's attention. Evil online. But yeah. if you go to use that title, then yes, I can understand he has to define his terms. Well, you have a problem with the term evil, yes. don't you? And the terms like evil doer. You know why? And it was explained to me when I went to a Jonathan Haidt lecture recently yes. that he took issue with this good bad dichotomy that yes. we construct that yes. person's evil it kind of feeds in to this binary way of looking at the world mm. which he thinks actually blinds us to complexity uh yeah well i think that the term evil is almost a biblical term isn't it i mean it's uh, Certainly, we mostly define people in terms of their actions and their behavior now from a secular perspective. And so a person can be independent of their behavior. They can do things which are maligned, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the person's evil. Evil almost seems like a simplification. The book isn't really essentially about that. It's it's about a moral fog that people develop that... As I said, it interferes with their moral compass and they end up doing things that they wouldn't do under normal circumstances. And I use the example of, uh, which is a psychological principle, de-individuation in lynch mobs. The people that they found in lynch mobs who were even passively involved would not have perpetrated that behaviour at a one-on-one level. Um, There's something that happens to people in groups and it it seems to be rarely good. I was interested in uh, how he avoids answering your question about whether he had to expose himself to the full gamut of evil online. You know, he certainly didn't have to go very far, I suppose. So so he didn't have to go into the dark web. A lot of the things that he talks about are essentially found on YouTube and in Facebook. Mm. Um, So some even some of these extreme behaviours parents effectively torturing their children for likes and followers can be found in mainstream Facebook. I think people will find this interview very interesting. 
So let's have a listen to Mark Halloran in conversation with Dean Cocking. So we're back in the studios of 94.9 Main FM and we've got Dr. Dean Cocking, who is a moral philosopher and the author of Evil Online. The first question I have is, how does someone become a moral philosopher? Ah, you go to uni, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, By accident, usually. That's usually how most start doing philosophy, I think, in their BA degrees when you're young. Uh, You pick up a few units. I actually started off thinking I was going to have a film career But that got sidetracked, got into philosophy just by accident and realised actually that's how I sort of think, trying to figure out the nature of things. Just kept on going. I was lucky. It was a good department at the time. And so, yeah, once I sort of, um, you know, found that there was actually a discipline that sort of uh, helped you in thinking more clearly, I was off. Right. Speaking of Evil Online, which is your book, this is the first chapter or the first couple of chapters really outline what the issues are with the internet in terms of what it does to people. Yeah. It seemed to me that you had to trawl through that. <laughs> you mean we had to go through all the territory to, to find this? Yeah. Well, you would have had to investigate this in terms of some of the groups. What, what were there? There was pro-anorexia groups, pro-suicide yeah. groups, giving people tips about how to most effectively commit suicide. Yeah. Something called... I think this is right, apotemnophilia, which is an amputee group. Yeah. Uh, it seems as though you would have had to have spent a lot of time in some of the darkest places of the dark web. Uh, not really. We didn't actually look at the dark web. We've had this on the go for years. I got the, the idea for this in a dream about 12 years ago. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, I was working on other stuff and I put. Um, I was working on the nature of intentions and I was working on the nature of evil and I put right. it into... You know, uh, and I was working on the online world, sort of looking at friendship. In it. Anyway, I put it together in this stream and came out with the title. Yeah. But then for various reasons, the project got sidelined. The result of which, though, is that, you know, I collected a lot of research over a number of years. Now, that case you're referring to was mentioned in a, a really kind of a, an early pioneering article by a, um, a bioethicist called Carl Elliott, and it was in The Atlantic. And this is well before anyone thought there were any problems with the internet. Which case in particular? The, um, I can't say very well either, but it's the one where... Oh, the which is the amputee sites. Yeah, that's right. It's usually connected to uh, sexual image, I think. They think they look better if you, you know, chop off a hand or, you know, a foot. So it was a very early case. It was before social media. And it was uh, was a great read, that, that story, because Elliot got across how... Things like these people had never talked to anyone face-to-face about their problems, much less a, a psychologist or anyone like that. Right. And he couldn't find anything on it in the literature, in libraries and so forth, and then he got online and all of a sudden there was this whole community on it. So right. that was one of the early articles that got across the idea of this sort of the filter bubble quite insulated from the rest of the world that can go on online, where people end up, you know, um, uh, supporting each other in sort of ideas like that. The private self and the public self are starting to collapse. You talk about the Mark Zuckerberg's idea that the public and private self shouldn't exist, that there should just be one self, and that's a great integrity. <laughs> the privacy-publicity um, contrast, the sort of plural worlds issue, yes. and all the values that I do think spring from that plurality is something I've been interested in for years. I wrote an earlier article that that chapter is really a development of, 
So, yeah, I'd be interested to see what you thought of that. I thought that, well, has anyone ever gone on Facebook and thought that's really is a representation of the person's life? (laughs) (laughs) With high levels of integrity? It's about turning people into a commodity, isn't it? That's what Facebook is about. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's a striking example of how identities are flatlined, isn't it? Uh, right. So we don't have the nuancing of the public face and the private face upon which, you know, we have civility and we have intimacy, for example. So you're either public or you're private. So you're either not there because it's withheld altogether. Yes. But you can't have both at once normally. Right. Even where you have Skype, say, it's a staged kind of environment, isn't it? You can do yes. it when you want. It's not spontaneous. It lacks a lot of the sort of uh, dynamic. It's certainly much more under your control about how you do it. So it's not like... Uh, yes the landscape of our traditional worlds and how we communicate to one another. It's much more blunt. I guess coming back to the original question, which was, has it affected you uh, looking at this material? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I hope not, no. Uh, You'd know this, right, from reading the book. The main case is not the extreme. I mean, one issue, of course, is how this world enables those with extreme inclinations to get together, find one another, or be in something of a moral vacuum and run amok. But much more striking, I think, is the landscape of otherwise fairly ordinary people who are perfectly able to understand moral realities and apply their moral knowledge um, seem to have that marginalised for various reasons in their engagement online. And that's, I think, the really interesting kind of area. Well, I think the part that stood out for me, it's not as though I haven't seen and heard terrible things in terms of working in forensic and clinical environments. Yeah. But the YouTubers, for example, the, the people who abuse their children because they have a following. Yeah. I thought it was interesting when I really thought about it. That is a really psychologically appealing thing to people to have people following them. It sure is, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's worse than that, right? If so, you've got the clicks, the yes. likes, and the followers, right. and you monitor it constantly. And there's everyone else, so you're looking at, well, how many have they got? Yes. <laughs> you know, and on have, Twitter, you know, you compare how many you're following and how many are following you all the time and with other people and so forth. So it's been referred to, I think, um, as the comparison trap. It's just right. so dominant on these social media platforms, isn't it? Yes. It's hard to avoid. Yes. Uh, I mean, it, you know, it's really, you have to make a, a deliberate decision to sort of put it out of your mind, I think, because mm. it's so front and centre of the medium and how you communicate. So it's the sort of comparative competitive kind of assessments that it just really encourages i think it's not something that is altogether unfamiliar to us obviously from our traditional worlds but it's through the roof on these platforms Mm. Um, it's really hard to sort of put aside i think i launched the book a couple of months ago and we had um, professor roger crisp there who who wrote some nice things in the back of the book for me he's a significant philosopher in terms of ethics with oxford university yeah that's right he holds the position of um, professor of moral philosophy there so yeah it's a big position but he's also a lovely guy which is yeah even more remarkable Uh, (laughs) a very lovely guy very generous guy i I never knew him but i I do quite a bit better now um anyway he was explaining at the launch that he'd been on a uh, a big study uh, into positive psychology anyway they were looking at people's experiences online and against a whole bunch of happiness indices they asked them to rate uh, their time on their devices. Now, the unsurprising thing was, of course, that they much preferred face-to-face, normal contact of our traditional world. But the surprising thing was they actually rated their happiness negative, that is, below nothing. That is, like, worse than 
being asleep or being in a coma. So in terms of how they understood their compulsion to be on it, it wasn't in terms of making them happy. Even if you do that, get that dopamine hit and you're relentlessly doing it, yes. if you're asked about you know, why you're doing this, is it making you happy against all these sort of measurements? No, it's not really. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, just before we started, you mentioned that you had uh, some problems with Arendt's banality of evil, um, understanding. And I just say that now because you, you sort of hinted there at the sort of the unthinking mind. Yes. And that, my, my issue at first was, well, yeah, okay, the, the elephant in the room is how do we explain the fact that you're of a normal psyche, so we're not thinking sociopaths or something, or yeah. someone just full of self-conceit or... Antisocial personality disorder. Yeah, we're not thinking of an otherwise normal psychology. Someone, you know, uh, perfectly capable of understanding moral reality, applying their moral knowledge. So the question is, um, how come that, that moral knowledge or their ability to apply it is being so marginalised? Yes. Um, okay, they're morally unthinking, yeah, but how come? Yes. Uh, now, uh, to be fair to Arendt, of course, she's got an answer and it's about totalitarianism. Right? Mm. So she's talking about that case. But, of course, that's not what we're talking about with the online world or in various real-world situations. So well, I think one contribution of the, the idea that um, is sort of the central idea of the book, which is that we're in some kind of moral fog here. So we have to look yes. at the features that create that fog. And they vary across various different kinds of cases. Now, in the online world, you've got a whole stack of features, haven't you, about how I can express myself and relate to other people. So it's not face-to-face. We've got weak ties, that is, you know, we're not strongly bonded to one another. Yes. We hardly know one. I can push a button and you're gone. <laughs> yes. Can't usually do that in real life, no matter how much you might wish. So it's a very different landscape in terms of how, not just objectify you or, or think yeah. of you as it, but myself. I mean, you look at people's social media sites and, you know, objectification of self is rampant, isn't it? Well, uh, narcissism is on the rise uh, according to various studies. Yeah, I think that's really interesting too because, you know, we, we typically uh, think of narcissism in terms of, you know, just being um, completely self-obsessed to uh, the exclusion of anyone else's interests. There's also the interpretation of it being, you know, when he, he's looking at the image of, it may not be himself, the image that he falls in love with. I'm just saying, another interpretation is just an image of beauty. And the moral of the story there is that not falling in love with yourself, but falling in love with images. Well, there's an image of representation which occurs online. So you're offering a representation of yourself. Yeah. Perfect. And the moral of the story is, of course, images can't reciprocate the love that you have for them because they're only an image. So there's a lot of studies now, you're probably aware of it, that are coming out and saying people are lonely on the internet. They've never been more connected to other people in their lives, but they're yes. lonely or they're depressed, etc. Well, I don't think it's the only explanation, but that way of thinking of narcissism, I think, is, is one relevant yes. factor. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Dean Cocking, moral philosopher... Well, in terms of uh, Hannah Arendt, perhaps we should explain what the banality of evil is and how moral fog differs to that. Yeah, sure. There's a famous trial of a, a Nazi called Eichmann. Adolf, yeah. Adolf Eichmann. 
and Arendt covered it for the New Yorker, I think, yes. um, in a series of articles. And she was utterly most struck, as many were, including a psych who examined, there's a famous quote, he examined Eichmann and said, mm. well, Eichmann is incredibly normal. He's certainly a hell of a lot more normal than I am after having examined him <laughs> because this moral monster was so normal. Yes. And yeah, anyway, Arendt was struck by his normality, um, that he just seemed to be so unthinking to the monumental horror of what he was doing and just going along with very ordinary motives like doing my job, it's the mandates of the state. Because um, Eichmann was responsible, he was the accountant, the numbers man who essentially funnelled people towards our switch and other and the, concentration camps. That's exactly right. And he was insanely good at his job. He was an amazing bureaucrat. An efficiency it, expert. Yeah, he, he was the, uh, the one who was primarily responsible for finding um, Jews throughout Europe in various places and getting them on trains. And yes, so without his uh, bureaucratic excellence, it, it would not have been so devastating. So he was the chief architect of the Holocaust there. But seemingly quite psychologically normal. But Arendt got a lot of flack because of that. Um, I think, well, you know, it's a bit like, um, I think in the book I said, uh, well, I mean, I don't mean to sort of um, make light of this, but, you know, Tarantino's film. Inglorious Bastards. Yes, yes. And at the end, when it all goes pear-shaped for Christopher Waltz, the, the head Nazi, he then acts sort of innocent in various ways, like he was just sort of following orders yeah. and all this sort of stuff. He was just doing what, you know, he was told to do. And Well, I, uh, I was glad to discover that in the footnotes of your, your book, that there were other analyses on that, because it always struck me as incredibly nice. Yeah. You have this guy that's escaped to South America, I think. Yeah. He's been captured. He's taken to Jerusalem to face war crimes. He is going to offer an explanation, uh, being fully aware that he is facing execution yeah. and do everything that he can to try and avoid that if possible. That's right. And he essentially gives up any responsibility whatsoever and delegates all responsibility upwards yeah. to simply say, I was following orders that's right so she copped a lot of flack for being so naive you know it was obvious to most people it was just spin on his part you know mm. um and also i think you know you i don't know if you remember but in the book i found some very recent research only about two years old that was right. <clears throat> looking at eichmann's time in south america and yeah he was a rabid nazi and very proud of all his achievements mm. and all the rest of it so he would have been a good uh, candidate for antisocial personality disorder totally yeah, yeah. so there's that but I think, as I make the point in the book, it's really beside the point whether or not Arendt's right about this particular guy, right? Yeah. What she does notice, and is dead on the money, and is such an important idea, is, and the question is this, how on earth could he just um, think it was okay, given the monumental horror of what he was doing? Right. Uh, even if it wasn't true of him, we know it's true of people generally just to lesser degrees, but in the workplace, in life generally, I think. Yeah. We see it all the time, and you say to yourself... Just consider ordinary everyday workplace examples like, you know, my door is always open, the boss says, and it's not. It yeah. never is, you know, and, you know, there's no cliques here, and there are, yeah. and we all know there are, you know, and we want to be in the favourite group and we're not, all that sort of stuff. What struck me is as a lesser example, but still a significant example, were the people who were abusing children online, their own children on YouTube, so that they could make money and get a significant following and the issue was with with a lot of these things and I think this is what struck me about the online behavior is that it invites escalation yeah. so you have to stay on top of your game to be better than everybody else who's got one of these YouTube channels it does, doesn't and, it? and what incredible validation 
you could not necessarily ask yourself whether you were morally in the wrong because there's gradations, isn't there? They don't start off at the most extreme things. Uh, these people were explaining it in terms of pranking their children. That's right. Doing cruel things. Eventually they were sent to prison and had their children removed from them. That's right, yeah. Well, like one thing I think is it's not just that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. Unless you're talking of an antisocial mind, yeah. how else could it be? Because evildoers always, unless they're, you know, predisposed to lunacy or massive Kantian self-conceit, they always will have a spin where what they're doing is permissible to preserve this pro-social self-identity, I think. To some extent, that comes down to that people will see other people's behaviour and see somebody acting poorly, immorally, let's say, uh, and blame that on some internal factor, personality factor they possess. But when the same thing occurs for them, they suddenly look for all the situational factors and the reinforcers that would explain why they simply made a mistake. Yeah, and that moral blindness, you know, the inability that you know we all have to lesser and stronger degrees to put ourselves in the shoes of the other yes. is the, the thing that we really need to unpack, I think. And the moral fog idea, I guess, is a way of sort of describing that and focusing our attention on the need to unpack the features that do generate that fog. Now, you said before the, the polarisation or the extremes that it's enabled Well, the, the escalation. Yeah, the escalation. Well, clickbait's the obvious example. If you've got saturated waters and, you know, people surf the net, it's a fleeting thing, right? So you're going to be uh, propelled to the more extreme kind of um, messages, otherwise you're not going to get attention. Now, the guy you're referring to, the prankster guy, he's a very extreme case. And like I said, most of the book, I think, is concerned with trends that have actually swept up many normal people, otherwise Mm. fairly normal people. But he's an extreme case because we're talking about a guy who's doing pranks like making it seem in front of his wife that his kid has just been killed in an exploding car, uh, thrown off a building. Very convincing. He was making a fortune out of this. He got Mm. something like 20 million hits or something on one of these. So, yeah, very extreme, but a lot of people are getting into it. People are implicitly and explicitly, I suppose, supporting it. Yeah. So there's a disassociation around their morals as well. Yeah. We look to him, but we don't necessarily look to every single one of those people who clicked and supported, liked. And obviously, probably there are subscribers. Yes, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of bubble, you don't have a moral authority, right? I mean, you're taking your lead from your internet friends, you're taking your lead from those who are giving you money in the forms of clicks and subscription and so forth because you're standing out in saturated waters and shocking them or whatever it is. So, yeah, it's not an environment that's going to um, encourage moderation and reasonable discussion here for attention. Right. Uh, because the, um, the fight for attention is pretty short-term. It's a short-term fight. It's not a long-term game. And uh, it's fierce. You know. So many of the examples of bullying that we came across, we open with the example of when on the site for epilepsy, I think it was, hackers had put these flickering images. To trigger grand mal epilepsy. Yeah. yeah. They didn't get any money out of it. They wouldn't have been seeing people having epileptic fits, so they wouldn't have got some kind of sadistic pleasure out of it. It seems it was just because it was something that they were able to do. Mm. you know exercise their amazing kind of hacking skills and play this trick on people there you go yes we don't get any money out of it we don't get any pleasure out of it we can just do it in one of the bullying examples um, i give which was really representative of many that i'd looked at in the end that's exactly what this jekyll and hyde kid uh, come up with it was because i could that's why i did it it was jekyll and hyde because he was uh, the sort of kid you'd like your kid to be friends with otherwise 
you know, a good kid at school. It was sort of like his outlet. Yeah, he was exactly right. It was, um, in his case, it was the chance to uh, play out the fantasy kind of tough guy bully that he'd always, um, yeah, fantasised about, but was never going to act out in real life. Without consequences uh, in his mind. Exactly. So all those reactive attitudes we normally have, if you or I say something a bit dodgy to one another now... Well, there's a whole range of censoring reactive attitudes we yes. express, formal and public and or conscious and, and less than conscious, like nonverbal ones, for instance, that we'll do. Most of that's gone, right? So it makes it hard, I think, for people, if you radically change the territory upon which a moral understanding applies, then you can, I think, easily get lost about that moral understanding and whether or not it's even relevant. I think the thing that struck me in terms of the idea of the moral fog was that I know cases where people, you simply make a wrong turn on the internet, you click on the wrong link, and there are people out there who will hack into your computer and find something on you. I think of a couple of cases where they've found out the person has been a victim of sexual assault or childhood sexual assault. That person who's now hacked into the computer is sending child pornography to this person who's a victim of it. And when I thought about it, the person behind that avatar may just be a parent. That's right. Or a, a person with a day job. Yeah who goes online and does this, or someone in IT, who for all other intents and purposes is normal. It's incredible, isn't it? Tell me if this resonates with exactly what you're just saying. I've just finished writing a short piece that I've called, and this um, results from the launch we had where we had a Q&A, and we had lots of parents, and one of the main things that came up was bullying problems, yes. as you'd kind of expect. You know, I just finished a little piece, of, uh, which is a big development from the book, because I, the book sort of introduces the idea of the moral fog, but the next step, I think, is going to be to get much more precise on the things that generate fog. And like I said, it's kind of an umbrella kind of concept, applies across a whole range of different circumstances. So depending upon the kind of case you're talking about, you're going to have different factors. But let me tell you this story. The, the piece I'm running is called Online Bully Schoolyard Friend. And at the launch, uh, one of the things that did promote my interest in this area was about 15 years ago, the daughter of a a good friend committed suicide on account of um, being bullied by by phone texts. Now, this was before the social media revolution, Mm. right? But they had mobile phones and they could text one another 24-7, right? Yes. Now... It turned out it was over nothing particularly unusual that this kid had a, a very normal family, just a, an interest in a boy and a competing interest from another girl. And so now I went to the funeral and the kids at the funeral were not only devastated at the suicide of their friend, but plainly devastated at the realisation they now had that they played a role in that. Mm. Now... That was 15 years ago, and the 24-7 kind of texting possibilities were all brand new. Yes. So they were all normal kids. There was no kind of horrendous sociopaths amongst these kids. They were her friends, too. It was a friendship group. And scaled down compared to what we have access to now. Yeah, that's right. But I could, looking at it, and this is what I've sort of been writing up, I can understand how you could easily lose your moral compass as a kid anyway, Mm. so it's not very well formed, and you're not used to this territory. But... 15 years later now, right? now online bullying has been kind of a pioneer of problems with the online world. Right? Mm. It's been there from the start. But now, particularly in sort of communities like ours, we have quite extensive educational programs. Everyone knows about it. It probably is the most researched and studied of evils online. And yet 
it's still going through the roof. It's flourishing as well as more than it ever has and and people are much more concerned about it than ever in spite of all the education that we have. So I saw a case this year, one of many of course, the father says, the father of a 14-year-old girl who committed suicide on account of online bullying, to all of those who thought it was a bit of fun and just a joke, come along to the funeral and see the devastation that you have caused. Mm. Which is exactly what I saw 15 years ago, which is the sudden awareness of the role that we played in your suicide. So my question is, it's, it's like a, a sort of a Black Mirror meets Groundhog Day. I mean, yes. how come we're still in this situation where mould understanding, which is otherwise absolutely loud and clear... Yes. is being marginalised. Because you can't say now, oh, it's all the newness of the medium. You can't say now yes. because we haven't been educated about online bullying. Yes. Right. So what's the explanation? Well, I think there are a couple of things. One, of course, is the, our needs, right, uh, particularly for, you know, uh, to yeah. fit in and, yes. you know, to be part of the Conform. group. Yeah, and we know about the sort of extremes that we've just talked about. So if you crack a funny joke at this person's expense, then I need to crack maybe a more extreme one in order for that to be noticed. And so, yeah, it gets out of control. We know about that. But another thing that's going on here, which is actually what's going on where I originally got the moral fog idea from, which is the fog of war case, where nowadays where it can be hard to tell who's the enemy military and who's the civilian because they can often all look the same. So our moral judgment that we can't kill civilians is hard to apply nowadays. That's one example, sort of a fog of war. The example there is about how the territory's being changed. And so the moral judgment has problems applying. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Dean Cocking, moral philosopher. I think about the psych research and going back to research that had been done on lynch mobs in the South that had lynched African-American people. And what they found was, so within that lynch mob you'll find just normal people. Yeah. They might be racist people, but for all intents and purposes they'll never commit a crime, have never assaulted anyone or done anything within a group and a mob you have de-individuation yeah so the person's personal responsibility vanishes essentially absolutely because of group rule there's a good example of that in your book in terms of the rwandan farmers yeah uh essentially massacring the the tootsies so of course that works in in terms of if you find a group all ethnic cleansing seems to work around this. You find a group who you can be jealous of or who you feel has taken resources from you, yeah. and you as a group feel as though you've been deprived, yeah. and you all agree that the other group is other and non-human. Yeah. That's the, that's the seems to me the key recipe for a massacre. But the problem with online uh, bullying is that you not only have de-individuation, so groups of people gathering together, but they're also literally anonymous yeah they can be anonymous in a way that a a, a mob yeah come together so you would still have people within that mob who would say who would have a moment of clarity yeah. and step back and say this is wrong we shouldn't be doing this yeah. there's only the solomon ash so milgram's yeah supervisor 25 percent. this is this experiment that struck me in first year psychology yeah. you get the people uh, you get a group of people who are confederates and one person who's the experimental subject and you show them lines and one and two of the lines are 
in no way comparable to one of the lines, but everyone in that experiment is in on it and they all act as though the lines are all of equal length. It's incredible, isn't it? And 55% of people will go along with that. 25% will resist continuously. People who are really uh, (laughs) more facts-based and stuck on getting things right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then at least a third of them will stay with that. And then within that, uh, there will be people who say, I actually perceive the lines as equal length. They, they, the, their perception had changed based on what... And that was within uh, individualistic societies. Yeah. The uh, effect is magnified within collectivist societies yeah. where the, uh, I suppose, moving outside of a group norm can be fatal within yeah. a tribal society. Well, I give the Ash example in the book, and yes. I mean, a simple way of looking at that is, wow, if our, if our simple judgments, like observational judgments, our perception judgments, that there's a tree, for instance, yes. um, are so uh, you know, uh, fluid depending upon peer group pressure, for instance, yeah. well then, God help us with you know, moral concepts and moral judgments, which are a hell of a lot more you know, kind of up for grabs and complicated than is that a tree or how long is this piece of string? Um, don't you think? <laughs> well, so I, I, I guess I think that your theory of moral fog, the, what I took away from it and whether that's right or not, is my impression was it gave me, it, it made me remember uh, de-individuation and it made me think about conformity. It seems to be a theory of, of things that people do wrong when they conform, when they don't think for themselves. Yep. Absolutely, and you're dead right. It's taken it through the roof. And a, a fantastic example of what you were just talking about, I just um, read the other day, actually. It was a pastor in the Rwandan um, period. And um, uh, I think um, on this weekend he had about 300 Tootsies that turned up to try and um, um, get some safety. And um, anyway, the marauding mob turned up and they'd already killed a bunch of people, so they had a taste for it and they were just about to go through with killing everyone. And then the pastor said, Hey, Trevor, or whatever, (laughs) I'm sure his name wasn't Trevor, uh, what do you think you're doing? And Stan, what are you doing? And said, oh, oh. Um, and Greg. And then Greg started arguing with Trevor. So, well, why have you got that? And then Stan argued with him. And they just bickered amongst one another. And because he personalised it, after about five or ten minutes, then they all just dropped their stuff and went home. And his line was he thought that if many more pastors had actually stood up, and because so many, of course, were in the same congregation, you know, the killers and those who were about to be killed. There's no separation. Yeah. I mean, for me, the the British partition of India and Pakistan and the animosity that occurs is simply in-group, out-group stuff. And racism, to me, is simply in-group, out-group preferences. And in fact, you can sort of become racist towards people who are exactly the same ethnic background to you, simply from the idea that you are other to me and you're, you don't belong inside my territory. Yeah, and as you would well know, once you get the us and them going, it's diabolical. I remember people saying that the Milgram experiment wouldn't work today. If you could first explain what the Milgram experiment was. Oh, OK. And then let me know, I guess, if you could talk about whether you think it would work today. Yeah, I'm sure it would. <laughs> In a different guise, I'm sure it would. Of course, you'd never be allowed to do any of this no, sort of stuff no, anymore. <laughs> no. mm. Imagine trying to get this the online world ticked off by an ethics committee. 
okay, this is our plan. We're going to get all these young people and we're going to connect them under conditions of anonymity, with weak ties to one another. Yes. Uh, no moral authority here. There's no parents or elders. Yes. Or What do you think? <laughs> Very little constraint around what they can say uh, yeah. and do and post and... Yeah. and no, I don't think it was going to fly. But, yeah, look, uh, Milgram's experiment, of course, okay, yeah, the, the most famous experiment in social science, I would have thought, in his experiment, this is done in the 60s, uh, he's a professor at Yale in the psych department, and he was particularly taken by the Nazi experience and the Eichmann trial that we referred to just before, of, yes. where Arendt came up with the banality of evil moniker, which was actually the last words of her book on it, but anyway. And so... I think at the time, uh, a lot of people th- actually thought maybe it's sort of a German thing. Mm. Yeah, actually- other German people different. They were affected by their war experiences, so the bombings of Dresden and things like that, but also affected by the guilt and the shame over yeah. what the Nazis had done. That's right. I mean, just generally, it is so important that we better understand how we're capable of such stuff, because obviously it's not because you're German. No. But anyway, so what Milgram did was uh, set up an experiment because he wanted to test obedience to authority. Yes. That, that was his idea. And so he had these uh, people come in. He had a, a, what was a, ostensibly a, a test of learning and memory. So he had people sit down in front of what was called a um, sort of a mock electric shock machine, which had different measures on it, like low shock, medium shock, high shock. There was death, I think, also. There was like a, a warning at that point, I think. Right, that, okay. That it could be fatal. Yes, okay. <laughs> and, and so the subject would ask... Ask a person, in some versions of it, this person would be out of sight, ask them a question. If they got that question wrong, then the idea was you give them a little shock in the interest of their learning and memory to prompt it a bit better. Of course, what was really going on, this was an actor, they would scream when they would get shocked and the authority figure, that was, say, Milgram in a white coat, would be... The a, white coat is important, apparently. Very important. And yeah. it's at Yale, yeah. and he's a professor of psych. Yeah. And what on earth do I know about social science? Doing. And he's telling me to shock people in the interest of this social science experiment. And I'm thinking, well, normally shocking people is not okay, but... Yeah. So this is my take on it. So many people say that the Milgram experiment shows how easily we give up the dictates of conscience for an authority figure yeah. or under authority. And, you know, people say that and they say, look, it's been repeated thousands of times and you get the same results. But, again, I think, like I was just saying before, isn't it more of a case of, well, where do I get my dictates of conscience here? I mean, I'm radically unfamiliar with this world of social science. Yale's an Ivy League university, one of the best in the world, and there's all these symbols of incredible credibility. And here's Stan, the man, right, in psych in the world, telling me that this is a very important experiment. Don't worry, I take full responsibility. And of course, you know, it's all above board. So at the least, I think we can understand that my normal moral understanding is going to be blindsided mm. it's because he's playing a trick on me. Uh, to some extent, that's a good replication of Nazi Germany, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. That's it's right, all absolutely. About authority. Yeah, that's right, absolutely. But the moral of the story is slightly different, which is not just kind of we're just like sheep and mm. our idea that we have these moral commitments, well, we just give them up if an authority yes. figure... Well, no, in, in this situation, and I guess this is a disanalogy to Nazi Germany a bit, I'm completely unfamiliar with this territory. In Nazi Germany, you've got much more other things happening, like well, do you want to live? Mm. Do you want your family to live? Do you want to have a job? Stuff like that happening. You're also triggering animosity to... Uh, the, Absolutely. You know, like anti-Semitism is, is around 
these people, this ethnic minority within a particular country has the resources and they've taken resources away from yeah. the people who are the natural denizens of the country. Yeah. If you want to create bitterness and resentment, that's the best way to do it. Isn't that also what happened during the Depression in the Deep South with the rise of um, the Ku Klux Klan and so uh, forth? I have read that there were, uh, you know... In They're taking out jobs. Or the, this yeah, the African-American farmers were doing quite well. You would only need a few examples of that to create animosity. If you're not doing well, if life is a struggle, and I yeah. think you tend to see this in any area of the world where life is harsh and difficult, that you will find really strong tribal in-group, out-group behaviour. Absolutely. Um, and violence. Yeah. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Dean Cocking, moral philosopher. Look, another thing I think, you know, hopefully you sort of noticed in the book is, and this is something that came with more um, sort of thinking about the nature of evil, which really became the focus of the book, really, rather than the online world so much, yeah. was to not demonise the online world too much here because really we have so many of these issues playing out in our ordinary traditional worlds, and we always have. So, you know, I mean, you're dead right. Environments, even competitive work environments. Now, you might occasionally it does spring out into violence, <laughs> even in an academic environment it's happened. Yeah. <laughs> but jobs are scarce. Yes. And so the kind of in-crowd stuff and the us and them and, mm. and all the schmoozing is really, you know, you're having a career can depend upon it. Mm. And there's so much more than just, say, uh, being good at that job because um, a lot of people can be good at their job. So, yes. And everyone knows this. So under conditions of such competitive, comparative kind of assessments yes. and where your livelihood can matter on it, your reputation matters so much on it, it's a recipe for disaster, I think. That is interesting because that's an interest of mine in terms of I think that the moral fog can occur within academia in terms of science and what people will accept. There's a permissiveness essentially, you know, or uh, let's not overly examine this because it may not be the story that we want to have. But what struck me about your book, or what interested me the most, and and what I hadn't expected was, it seems as though you're very moral. I I sort (laughs) of expected a moral philosopher to be kind of morally agnostic or something. Okay. That you would be sort of like, well, there's these things that occur and there's those things that occur, but it seemed as though you had a strong sense of what was right. Yeah, I think, I mean, I hope I'm not kind of a moralist, heaven forbid, (laughs) but I do think that I am coming from a place of deep sort of worry, I guess, about the fate of pretty fundamental values, and I can see how easily it can happen. You can lose sight of things down the track of living in a certain world that has marginalised those values. If you put them aside for long enough, you can lose sight of them, and the whole kind of nuance of our ways of expressing ourselves and relating to one another is so blunted online and so much of it is lost. Uh, Chapter 3 is devoted to that on the public-private contrast and how those sort of plural values are very much flatlined online. I think you talked about education and I think that education doesn't always necessarily equal change. There was a study called the Californian Task Force which went around to schools and the idea of this task force, I think it was in the 90s, was to increase self-esteem because the administration and the legislation and the uh, lobbyists were all saying, well, the problem with kids is they'll turn to drugs and they'll turn to teen pregnancy. 
turn to teen pregnancy. But they <laughs> will reduce the rates of teen pregnancy and drug use by increasing their self-esteem. Yeah. And what they found was, so they sent out this task force education, they found it made no difference whatsoever. Right. So sometimes our ideas of what we think are effective and helpful yeah. are not. And sometimes they actually make things worse. Absolutely. Here's a good example. You know, the polarisation problem. You'd be aware of the sort of the uh, identity politics stuff there, particularly in the States, right? Yeah. Um, well, it's here as well to yeah, some extent. Absolutely. Yeah. But one example of that is online you have the left very polarised, the right yeah. very polarised. So a little study was done. Now, it was only one study and it was only for a month. But, okay, to get a, a, around this kind of filter bubble, echo chamber, you know, um, get more extreme, more polarised because you yes. only hang out with like-minded types, what we're going to do is we've got a 1,000 people uh, who are very strongly on the left, we're going to expose them to all this stuff on the right. We've got a 1,000 people on the right, going to expose them to all this stuff from the left. Yes. And we do it for a month. What happened at the end of that month? Were they more moderate because <laughs> they saw their views that contrasted to this? No, they'd become more polarised, actually. They'd be more anxious, Right, yeah. You say because the I think you're right because well, I just read another study actually that says, well, a way forward on that polarization is kind of there's two points that made one is a kind of a trick mm. where if you make people think it's their idea, yes, right, then they're very fluid. They'll quickly adopt right. the contrary view right. that, that they previously were defending to the death yes. if they think it's their idea. And the other one is if they think they're being under attack. Mm. or if they are being defensive, they will totally dig their heels in. Well, it's also around homogeneity. So what you're trying to figure out within your group, so if you've, over time, for different reasons, usually personality traits, you know, will predict whether you're left or right. Yeah. And some of your ideas and your ideas around what is right and how the world should function. But within that homogeneity, that group, and there'll be all sorts of different parts of the left and right obviously there's things they now call the regressive left i think richard dawkins talks about that okay <laughs> but it's similar to me in group out group behavior it's simple yeah. tribal behavior so you can hear things within that group and, and i'm even aware of it and someone the group may express an idea that you think well that's not right but you'll very quickly conform to that because otherwise the group will eject you yeah and so you're monitoring that area. That's why the, the campus example in America is a good example. They don't want speakers on campus. They yeah. don't care if speakers are anywhere else. It's like this is our territory. This is our tribe. Yeah. You don't infect us with that. It's like an immune response. You, yeah. can, you can see that in Castle Maine potentially. You know? <laughs> if you brought in someone, uh, somebody who was deemed to be inappropriate like an antigen, then people would be saying, they don't care whether that person speaks anywhere else. It's simply... It doesn't occur within my area and within my group. You know, we're protecting ourselves. Well, you know, and that's identity politics. There's right identity politics, left identity politics. But it, it's simply that conformity. People conform because that's what people do. Absolutely. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not always sort of a matter of dissembling. It's like you, when you unpack it and you're right, you, you would say stuff like, well, if I make a stand here, it's like yes. the bystander effect. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be on the out. And yes. we all know we're not going to, this is the other thing with social beings, we know we're not going to flourish well if we're Scotty Neville. I mean, you know, uh, happy hermits are kind of a rare thing, right? Right. So there is a point to it, which is, you know, mortal and moral point. 
element to it, which is uh, our flourishing does depend upon being included, I think. Yes, it's very difficult because university environments were around, or used to be at least, around disabling that. So you would be exposed to ideas that yeah. you didn't like. Exactly. And you got to examine them. Yeah. And so you can form groups that are heterogeneous in terms of ideas. Yeah. And you, you do get people who tend to be centric or non-centric. But even within them, I mean, I think Claire... Lehman, who runs Quillette, and, and you know, you've got the what are they, the dark web intellectuals? Yeah, they still play to a market, they still don't say things that their group fundamentally disagree with, they don't try out an idea that, uh, and they, they try more and more extreme ideas to yeah. try and get more and more interest from their group, essentially. So, yeah. there's an escalation there as well. I mean, yeah, I think the, you're right, actually. Sam Harris is a good example. His conversations with Charles Murray around IQ, essentially, neither of them understand James Flynn and his work around the Flynn effect. So, they've had a conversation outside of their expertise, in my estimation. Yeah. And the reason that they do that is because they know it. Well, it's good marketing, isn't it? But it's also good for your group. Yeah. It's good for who listens to you. Yeah, there is a shtick going on with a few of them, mm. isn't there? Yeah. yeah. And in some cases, there is a, an extremism going on to get yeah. more attention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one classic that's going on at the moment is an utterly rabid defence of free speech. You yeah. know, I mean, we, we should be able to say and absolutely yeah. have anyone on no matter how fascist they are yes. and all the rest of it you know i mean that many years ago it was a Bertie russell refused to have a debate with some fascist at the time I forget yes. his name but there can be very good reasons i mean it's very naive to think a, a, a cogent argument is always going to win the day I yeah. mean, if only and that's a big part of what we're talking about here is how our moral understanding can so easily be marginalized by a whole range of features so we can't be so careless just to think well well, I mean, many of them say things like, well, you know, if you won't have a fascist debating with you, it's just because you've run out of good arguments back. Well, yeah. no, it's not. It's because he's not listening, which yeah. he's not listening. It's not about well, that. I think there are things you can put to bed. So I don't need to debate with a Holocaust denier. Yeah. And to some extent, if I've got the Holocaust denier here with me now, to some extent, I'm saying I'm taking you seriously even in debating you, yeah. even in, in me dealing with your confabulatory mind and your responses. Yeah. And there could be other people out there. We've all got a degree, even the greatest sceptic has a degree of the conspiratorial to them and confabulation. So you don't want to reinforce that. You do really simply want to state, this is not a discussion worth having because this issue is quite obviously settled. Yeah, and you can't have a, a reasonable discussion where it's one way. It's that simple, mm. right? I mean, if I'm not playing ball with a reasonable discussion, then no. we're not having one. No, and yeah. you can often sound like you're losing the argument with someone who's not willing to engage in a reasonable discussion because people need to be able to hear where the other person is engaging in ad hominem attacks. Yeah. And I've seen commentators deny that they use ad hominem attacks and then use one. Yes. Which means that they don't even understand what an ad hominem attack is. Yeah, that's right. Your book made me think about morality because I, I'd always consider myself as not much of a, um, a cultural relativist. Yeah. I, I felt like you can certainly say things that are better or worse, yeah. ethically or morally, across cultures, you know, within practices and things like that. And that's how we could make decisions around morality. There are things that are going to be for your greater good and beneficence and things that are not for your greater good. Well, I think one thing that is plainly true is the, the kind of importance of moral education in 
it's not like we're just born with it, I don't think. Yes. It's pretty plain. And, you know, one way of looking at what's happening online is this sort of remarkable kind of backpedal. It's as if, because we, we've got people here who have, in many cases, been brought up in a functional community by good parents and they, for their age, have a, a good moral understanding of, of things and uh, get online and it all goes pear-shaped. So in some ways, this environment's enabled the sort of the backpedalling from Aristotle to Hobbes. Right. Uh, uh, we're supposed to go the other way around, of course. We're supposed to be get the moral education, you know, of our good supporting community that teaches us the virtues and Golden then we're in business. around virtue. Yeah, but at least we get educated in the virtues by a good community around us, if we're fortunate. Well, the other thing, I suppose, I think is that we could work it back the other way from education because a lot of the conversation, particularly online, it's not the same as a Rwandan farmer going out yeah. to massacre a Tutsi yeah. villager. Maybe we say it's not real. Maybe we all tell ourselves it's not real. Yeah. This is not really, really real. Yeah, we do. Often. I mean in terms of a way of solving it. Like I grew up, I'm old enough to have grown up. When I was bullied in the playground, my family, my parents' uh, extended family, their advice was always, oh, well, it's sticks and stones, isn't it? It's yeah. not going to hurt you. Yeah. Get over it, essentially. Yeah, that's right. Is the answer that... When we engage with it, it's very different with people with with a mental illness, potentially, but for the vast majority of people, do they just say, well, what is occurring is not real? Some do. Uh, I think you mentioned earlier someone in an example who had a particularly strong sense of self and was able to sort of resist things, so some do. But the sticks and stones things, as as I'm sure you well know, is not true, right? No. Uh, In workplaces, for instance, I just read some research recently, just even minor slights or failures of civility, Mm. people stressed about them, you know, what was that look really about? What did they really mean by that? It could be a very minor thing, might even not be a real thing that actually happened. People worry about that sort of stuff all the time, so... Yeah, the sticks and stones is not so true. And in fact, no. you know, on the footy field, you get some terrible violence and then yes. um, oh, they'll shake hands and have a beer together, apparently. So yes. uh, in, in that case, it's quite the other way around. Right. If you said something ugly to one another, that would be very offensive. Yes. But, you know, a bit of a right hook in the, in the heat of battle, no problem. Yes. Well, it's, uh, I guess it's emotionless violence, potentially. Yeah. There's a difference between yeah. the violence, which is instigated from a place of emotion and animosity and enmity, yeah. versus, well, like a boxing match, this is simply our job. Yeah. We might hate each other, but yeah. there might be an emotional undercurrent, but often there's not. Yeah. If you fuel it with some um, significant righteous outrage, then you've mm. got a much bigger problem. Yes. Yeah. Uh, we might leave it there. Thanks, Mark. And that was Mark Halloran in conversation with Dean Cocking. Yeah, there's a couple of terms there, Mark, I'd like you to explain. Sure. Ad hominem, an ad hominem attack. What does that mean? If we're having a debate or an argument, a verbose discussion, I suppose, and you're saying something that I disagree with and probably I just don't have a very good answer, then what I will, if I'm making an ad hominem attack, what I'll do is I'll stop talking about your argument and start criticising you as a person. It's a distraction technique, apparently, and it shows essentially the weakness of the, the argument that they're making. Polemics used to be treated very seriously 
in classical studies. Right. You know, how people argue and common little tricks, straw man arguments, all sorts of things. I think your arguments, the arguments you make are indicative of the way that you think. And so if the way that you think is around simply attacking your opponent by abusing them, then that doesn't bode well for an idea. I read a quote today by Eleanor Roosevelt, Mm. and she said that great minds focus on ideas, Mm. uh, good minds focus on events, and small minds focus on people. Mm -hmm. You know, that had nothing to do with Dean Cocking's interview. No. But it was still interesting to talk about. (laughs) Well, didn't it have anything to do with, I mean, we talk about moral psychology, Jonathan Haidt talks about moral psychology, talks about one of the key mistakes people make is to simply separate the world into good and evil. And don't we see that in politics? One side is all evil, one side is all good. What nonsense. Well, anyway, we better uh, move on and introduce next week's show. You're going to be interviewing Uh, Professor Jenny Graves. Yeah, she's a world-renowned geneticist and famous or perhaps infamous for her suggestion that the Y chromosome is disappearing. All right. Well, stay tuned for that because that has enormous ramifications for all you men out there. (laughs) In about three million years. (laughs) Human beings. I don't think human beings will be around in three million years' time. That's a whole other issue. So um, join us uh, next Monday at 4 p.m for another episode of Deep Trouble. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Steve. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine. Magazine would like to thank its sponsors Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery, and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support. <laughs>